This week takes us to Texas City, Texas, where a young teenager skips school and is found raped and killed several hours later. However, it would take 16 more years for her killer to be brought to justice. This is episode 62 of Texas 1031. Hey everyone, it's Hannah. This is Texas 1031 and this is a Texas true crime podcast. This week I have a heavy hitter for you all. I never really thought that I would do this, but I am finally going to cover the murder of Crystal Jean Baker. For whatever reason, I knew of this case as being totally separate from the killing fields. I didn't realize that Crystal was thought to be connected to that, you know, uh, true crime phenomena until just a few years ago. Uh, But either way, I always found her murder to be ultra tragic and interesting. So here I am. Uh, So picture it, Texas City, Texas, 1996. Uh, I am also recovering from like a cold or something. So apologies for my extra nasally voice. The Trinity River stretches across 710 miles. It is the longest river with a watershed entirely within the state of Texas. It rises in northern Texas, a few miles south of the Red River, and branches off into four primary directions. However, the river empties into Trinity Bay, an arm of Galveston Bay that is an inlet of the Gulf of Mexico. In March of 1996, the Trinity River would become the newest crime scene for one of the many Texas killing field victims— that of Crystal Jean Baker. In March of 1996, Jeannie Escamilla, mother of 13-year-old Crystal Jean Baker, was living life as a 36-year-old single mom working as a cosmetologist in Texas City, trying to make it by. The Gulf town had its cons, but overall the family enjoyed living there, especially since Jeannie's mom, Crystal's grandmother, lived nearby. Tuesday, March 5th, was a relatively typical day for Crystal. However, she wasn't feeling too well that morning as she had come down with an ear infection. I've seen articles mention both ears were infected, one ear was infected. Regardless, she didn't feel well, so she told her mom, Jeannie, that she wanted to stay home from school and rest up. So her mother tells Crystal, you know, that's fine, but that Crystal needed to go to her grandmother's house and wait there until she was off work and she'll come and pick her up later after she is off for the day. Crystal enjoys her sick day home from school at her grandmother's. She relaxes and rests most of the morning and afternoon. However, after school lets out that day, one of Crystal's friends calls her and asks her if she wants to come over to her house and hang out. Crystal asked her grandmother if she could give her a ride to her friend's house in Bayou Vista as it was a quick, you know, three mile trip by car. Crystal's grandmother refuses to give her a ride due to her being sick with the ear infections and all. And in turn, the two get into a relatively heated argument and Crystal takes off on foot. Around 2.30 p.m., Crystal has made it a little ways down the road and she stops off at a tire slash mechanic shop to use the phone to call her mom, Jeannie. Crystal explains the situation between she and her grandmother wanting to go to her friend's house, and she asks Jeannie for a ride as well. But Jeannie tells her, you know, she's at work, she can't leave, so she needed to go back to her grandmother's for now and head home around 6 p.m. Crystal tells her fine and hangs up the phone, but as I am sure you can already guess, Crystal is nowhere to be found when Jeannie arrives home from work. 
Mother's intuition really kicks in and Jeannie knows something is very wrong. Crystal, you know, despite being a little rebellious, would have contacted her mom in some shape or form. She wouldn't have just not come home or reached out to her. So Jeannie picks up the phone and calls the friend that Crystal had gone to see that day. And I'm sure you can yet again already guess that the friend told Jeannie that Crystal had spoken to her on the phone about coming over to hang out uh, for the afternoon. But after that, she never showed up. Jeannie gathers a few friends and family members, and they began kind of a basic search for Crystal around town. They searched, you know, the entire neighborhood and areas of town that Crystal may have gone to, but to no avail. With a heavy heart, Jeannie calls the Texas City Police Department to report Crystal as missing. According to Texas City Police Detective Brian Getchis, um, that's not how it's it's a forensic files last name. It's uh, G-O-E-T-S-C-H-I-U-S, Getchis. So yeah, just wanted to point that out. So according to Detective Brian, the department does take a report, the missing persons report, but quote, does not put a lot of effort into it, end quote. Nice. Police also defended their actions or the lack thereof due to the fact that the Amber Alert system hadn't been put into effect yet, which I can kind of understand since Amber Hagerman had only been abducted and killed just a few months prior in January of that year. But I still think that's really only an excuse in hindsight since the Amber Alert system, you know, has been implemented. So I don't really buy that as an excuse, but... Regardless, when Crystal is still not home in the morning, Jeannie heads to the police department to follow up with officers. However, all Texas City Police tells Jeannie they can do is enter Crystal into the DPS's missing child database. If they only knew that in Chambers County near Galveston, Sheriff Deputy Wesley King, who at the time was a motorcycle cop, gets dispatched to a call that involved a body being found on the side of the road under the Trinity River Bridge by a local fisherman. In every interview Deputy King gives, he states that he initially thought that the fisherman, you know, he had to be mistaken. He claimed that this area was a common dumping ground for trash and furniture, and he figured it was probably just an old mannequin or a pile of cardboard, you know, something like that. But no big surprise here, he was fucking wrong. The 911 caller was later determined to be William Patterson. He was the person who made the initial 911 phone call to the sheriff's department. He and his wife, Edith, were questioned by police regarding what they had found. Uh, William Patterson told officers that they were fishing for catfish upriver and were walking back to their vehicle when they spotted the body. Upon seeing the body, however, William decided that it was a smart idea to cover Crystal with a blanket out of respect. So that got a little weird, but it's 1996. I don't know. Deputy King is a little skeptical of the couple's story, and he decides to do a basic search of the Patterson's car, which is, a, you know, good police work. But there were no signs of any struggle or crime having been committed inside their vehicle. So with their first obvious suspects ruled out, Deputy King and his team began to assess what will later be determined to obviously be Crystal Jean Baker's body and the surrounding crime scene. So Crystal was found lying on her back with one arm up and her head turned to the side. She had obvious ligature marks to her neck, so it was very apparent that she had been strangled. 
She also had defensive wounds to her hands and fingers, and it was evident that Crystal had suffered through a brutal rape as well before she was strangled to death. There was no apparent murder weapon at the scene and no evidence left behind like clothing, personal items, you know, footprints, things like that that would overtly point to a suspect or where to really look next. Investigators believe that due to the area surrounding Crystal's body, it appeared that she was raped and killed elsewhere and dumped under the bridge near the water afterwards. At this point, Chamber County still had a Jane Doe on their hands. They did not realize who this person was, how it was connected to anywhere else. And according to the investigators, this, you know, Jane Doe, she had only been dead for a few hours when they arrived at the scene. And three days later, they still had no idea who had been killed. Three days eventually turned into two weeks with no more answers for Texas City Police, Chambers County Sheriff's, or Crystal's mom, Jeannie. Finally, after all this time, Texas City Police start to take Jeannie's concerns seriously and begin to work Crystal's missing person case. Since they did enter Crystal into the DPS database, Texas City is finally put into contact with Chambers County due to, you know, similarities between Crystal and the Jane Doe. I mean, wow, crazy. Uh, that's just... Why did it take three weeks? Uh, Detective Getchis calls Jeannie and asks her if she can come down to the police station to discuss some things regarding the case. They take Jeannie into a small interrogation room and tell her, hey, you know, we have some of these crime scene photos. You know, we need to show these to you and we need you to attempt to identify Crystal from these pictures. Now, these are the same pictures taken of her by the river, raped and strangled. So that's going to be difficult already, but she's beaten up and decomposing. So that makes it even more difficult. But Jeannie said that she recognized the dress that was on the body because it had been given to Crystal for her birthday by one of Jeannie's best friends. And as soon as she realizes that the girl in the photos is her daughter, Jeannie falls to her knees and passes out in the interview room. Now that the police can confirm that Crystal wasn't just a runaway and that she indeed was, you know, raped and murdered, the investigation immediately gets underway and forensic testing begins. According to Detective Getchis, back in the 1990s, in order for a specimen to be tested, whether it be blood, saliva, semen, a dime-sized piece of that biological evidence was required, no matter what type it was. Unfortunately, the samples they locate on Crystal's clothing and body don't provide a decent, you know, DNA profile. So without significant forensic evidence, the police were left to utilize the old faithful methods of policing, um, which were interviews and eyewitness testimony, you know, the uh, real reliable stuff. Detective Getchis starts at the last place Crystal was confirmed to have been, the tire slash mechanic shop. He asks some of the employees on duty if they recognized Crystal, and a few remember her being in the shop during the week that she went missing. Detective Getchis also asks if anybody may have seen, you know, someone else in the shop, someone unfamiliar, anyone that stood out during the time Crystal was using the phone, but no one seemed to be able to remember that far back about anyone specific standing out. So they can remember Crystal, but no one else. Interesting. Since his first lead led them, you know, to a dead end, <clears throat> Detective Getchis decided to investigate Crystal herself a bit further. 
He wanted to get to know her and her life to see if there was anyone that she may have personally known that could be capable of killing her or I just have a reason to. So he begins with the person that knew her best, her mother, Jeannie. According to Jeannie, Crystal was a fun, loving teenager living for the now. She made every day special and lived life to the fullest. Crystal made great grades, but was also very social. She loved to write and draw and aspired to be a cheerleader once she made it into high school. Crystal was also fucking gorgeous. It probably didn't help that her great aunt was Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Be sure to check out the picture of her on Instagram if you don't already know what she looks like. Um, And by that, I mean Crystal, not Marilyn Monroe. Um, Jeannie said that Crystal's appearance was actually kind of a real burden for her as a teenager because all guys wanted to do was to fuck her and all the girls in her school seemed to just be jealous and hateful. They weren't, you know, lifting girls up and girls supporting girls. That that wasn't a thing in the 90s in high school. I don't even think it's still a thing in high school. Jeannie explained how Crystal did struggle with friendships and bullying while in junior high. And despite being sweet and extroverted, she was known to have some pretty rough experiences growing up. Jeannie tells Detective Getchus that Crystal has been the target of some fights within some, you know, groups of girls at her school in the past. And Jeannie's just trying to reach for anyone who really could be a possible suspect or perpetrator, have a reason in Crystal's past to have done and committed this crime. So Detective Getchus tracks down the girls Jeannie had mentioned and questions them about their whereabouts the day and the night that Crystal went missing. The girls all confirmed that they were at some after-school sports activity and vehemently deny having anything to do with Crystal's death. However, due to the fact that Crystal was most likely picked up at the tire store, raped and killed, and then transported the 50 miles away to where she was dumped, Detective Getchus wondered if the girls may have enlisted the help of like an older guy or a sibling who had a car to do the heavy lifting. They're trying to also keep in mind that there's like a fairly limited time frame of 2 p.m. when she left her grandmother's house to 5 p.m. when her body was found. The, you know, three to three and a half hour window wasn't an ideal time frame when it came to school aged teens and police couldn't find anyone that didn't have an alibi for that time frame. Police even checked the school attendance list and confirmed all three of Crystal's bullies were at school that day and never left until far later after their, you know, cheerleading or whatever, you know, sports practice ended. Police, however, didn't totally give up on the possibility that Crystal was killed by someone she knew. Jeannie presented another potential suspect, a boy Crystal had recently developed a crush on. Crystal had met a boy named Randall Robbins, Forensic Files, at the uh, local bowling alley, and the two started a little flirtation. Jeannie remembers Randall being very well-dressed and incredibly nice, and Crystal really fell for him. She was writing love notes and poems and things like that. Typical, you know, teenage stuff. But despite Randall's good reputation, Detective Getchus still brings him in for questioning. Randall claims that he and Crystal were just friends and nothing more. He denied anything romantic ever occurring between he and Crystal and that he thought Crystal may have been interested in him, but the feelings were not reciprocated. When Detective Getchus asked Randall where he was during the hours Crystal was missing, he claims he was working at a car lot. When investigators contacted the car lot to confirm, 
Randall's alibi, the times didn't perfectly match up, but they weren't completely off either, just a few minutes here and there. So with nothing really to hold him on and no evidence connecting him to Crystal's murder, police have to let Randall go. Meanwhile, in Chambers County, Deputy King gets an interesting tip via the Crime Stoppers hotline. Turns out that the Pattersons weren't the only ones down by the river the day Crystal's body was discovered. A 43-year-old man named Marv Roberts was, uh, I just hear Marv and I think uh, Home Alone, right? Uh, Marv Roberts was also spotted in his truck near the crime scene that day. Marv was known in the area as being a little bit of a seedy character. He was unemployed. He had a mild reputation in Chambers County for his attitude, his temper, and his drinking primarily. So to ensure that they crossed every T and dotted every I, Deputy King calls up Marv and asks him to come in for an interview. I mean, honestly, all of this is actually pretty good police work, except for the fact that they didn't take the initial missing persons report really seriously. After that, the investigation is pretty well done, honestly. Anyway, so he asks him to come down for an interview. Marv tells Deputy King that he was down by the river on the day in question, drinking as usual, okay? So he's open and honest about what's going on. However, he tells him he doesn't recall seeing a dead body anywhere in the area. Marv frequented the area to waste the day by drinking in his car and enjoying the scenic river. Police also didn't realize that Marv was disabled. He was pretty much affixed to his wheelchair at all times. So the likelihood of him raping, murdering, and dumping Crystal Baker was relatively incredibly low. Back in Texas City, Jeannie is still convinced that Randall had something to do with Crystal's murder, especially when he didn't attend her funeral. Police bring Randall back in for questioning, during which they find out that he's actually 19 years old, not fucking 14 or 15 like Jeannie had thought. I feel like the dead giveaway that he was over 18 was that he had a fucking job at a car lot, like... What 14 or 15 year old has a job like that? But okay. Police begin to think that Randall may have had some ulterior motives since it is usually predator type people who hide their age and hang out with a younger crowd. Jeannie insisted that Randall had to have killed Crystal because he had this, you know, history of lying to Crystal, Jeannie, and now the police. She believed that Randall was preying on Crystal and Crystal, you know, she knew him well. She would have gotten into the car with him. She just, she was very adamant about it. She was 100% certain that Crystal would not have gotten into a car with a stranger, so it had to be someone that she knew. So at this point, Randall has some motive, but definitely means an opportunity. Although he denied being romantically interested in Crystal, and if anything, it was the other way around, he still could be lying about his true intentions with her. To be sure, police hook Randall up to a polygraph machine and administer a lie detector test. They question him about anything and everything regarding Tuesday, March 5th, when Crystal disappeared, what their relationship was like, and if he killed Crystal. Randall admitted he fucked up by lying or, you know, omitting his age to Jeannie. But other than that, the polygrapher couldn't find any signs of deception or lying in his polygraph results. So to be sure, officers decided to drive the route he would have had to have taken to dump Crystal's remains and then get to work on time. The answer was a resounding no. The time frame wouldn't have worked out and police were able to determine that Randall Robbins could not have been involved with Crystal's murder. 
At this point, investigators are out of leads and persons of interest to go on, so the investigation is kind of left at a standstill. However, a little over a year after Crystal's murder, in April of 1997, Laura Smither goes missing and is found murdered and dumped in a retaining pond 17 days later, only 30 minutes from where Crystal's body was found a year earlier. This is when investigators began to think that maybe Laura and Crystal's murders are connected, so they decided to branch out their search and see what other murders had occurred in the general region as of late and see if anything can point them in the right direction. The police primarily do this because Laura and Crystal's bodies were found on the isolated stretch of I-45 that had famously become known as the Texas Killing Fields. From the late 80s to the early 90s, several girls' remains had been found no less than a few hundred yards from one another. But since the early 1970s, 30 bodies of murdered victims have been found within the Killing Fields area. They were mainly the bodies of girls or young women. Most of the victims were aged 12 to 25 years old. It is now believed that many of the murders are the work of multiple serial killers. The problem was that all of these cases had hit dead ends and none of them were getting solved. As more time went by and more girls were getting discovered, Crystal's case got colder and colder. Investigators had no physical evidence or witnesses to not just Crystal's case, but the other killing field murders as well. Jeannie attempted to stay in touch with Detective Getchis, but over time, he had less and less information to provide. So Jeannie's hopelessness increased. As investigators worked the killing field cases, they realized there wasn't a strict pattern, primarily besides the age of the girls and the dumping site. To them, Crystal's case really stood out as different than the others. You know, over time, investigators were starting to realize that these women were really only connected in the fact that they all had been found in the same general area. Soon, police understood that they were looking at the work of multiple different killers, which made their job even more difficult. By 2009, it had been 13 years since Crystal was raped and murdered. But investigators get a small break in the case. Sherry Wilcox, an evidence officer with the Chambers County Sheriff's Office, had recently attended a seminar that discussed a new way of testing for DNA evidence. Sherry reviewed Crystal's case and was truly touched by the, you know, traumatic crime. And it made her, she made it her mission to try and get Crystal's case solved. Sherry tries to submit the semen samples and fingernail scrapings to the state crime lab for testing, but the lab refuses, citing a lack of funding and resources for testing cold cases. However, in the midst of attempting to get the evidence tested, Chambers County gets a call from an inmate in Minnesota claiming to be Crystal's killer. Lorenzo Sanchez is already in prison for the stabbing death of a 12-year-old girl from Minnesota in 1999. Lorenzo claims to have strangled Crystal and dumped her body under the bridge on his way out of town. Unfortunately, officers were able to debunk Lorenzo's confession soon after he spoke with detectives. The information he provided was, you know, public knowledge. They were able to determine that he wasn't even in Texas during March of 1996. So that was a bust. Upon hearing the news that Lorenzo Sanchez was just a compulsive confessor, Sherry Wilcox does something she probably shouldn't have. 
Since she was denied the first time when she tried to submit the evidence in Crystal's case, she decides to just slip it in with a group of other items that needed to be submitted for testing without telling anyone. The lab completes the testing, not realizing that they are working on an almost 15-year-old cold case. Using the semen stains found on Crystal's dress the day she was found, the crime lab is able to construct a full DNA profile. They return the information to Sherry, and she enters the DNA information into CODIS, but again, to no avail. The database doesn't return a match. However, a year later, in January 2010, near Sabine Lake in Louisiana, two hours east of Texas City, a police officer issues a traffic stop during the middle of the night to a driver unable to maintain a lane. The officer claims to smell marijuana and requests the driver step out of the vehicle so he can search the car. Inside, the officer finds a bag of hydrocodone pills, so he arrests the driver for illegal possession of stage two narcotics. Louisiana has a state-specific law that states when a person is being booked in the, into jail, they uh, not only are fingerprinted, but they must also give a DNA sample that is entered into the CODIS database. I know that this is a controversial you know, procedure or policy, whatever. I think that it's a really good idea for certain offenses, at least more of the heavier felony offenses or violent crimes. But this, this really, this law and this procedure saves the fucking day. So think about that next time you're questioning something that sounds a little privacy infringing. Later the same month, Sherry Wilcox checks CODIS to see if anything returns to the DNA she had submitted a year ago, and boom. A return on 40-year-old Kevin Edison Smith shows up on her computer screen. Kevin, the man who had been pulled over and arrested in Louisiana, was from Texas City, was a worker at one of the many plants in the area, and had a very minimal arrest record at the time. Certainly nothing in relation to violence towards women. According to a Texas DPS DNA analyst, it would take 1 billion planets with the same human population as Earth before finding someone other than Kevin Edison Smith who would match the DNA profile that was found on the dress of Crystal Jean Baker. By now, Kevin has posted bond for his drug charge but was arrested yet again on September 22, 2010. Four days later, Texas City holds a press conference announcing the arrest of Kevin Smith for the murder of Crystal Jean Baker. Two years later, in April of 2012, Kevin Smith's trial begins. He opts to not testify, and his attorneys pose his defense as Crystal's murder uh, being as being an accident. Mm. The claim was that the two were having sex, things got carried away, and Crystal was killed, but then the jury was able to hear a taped confession... Kevin made while he was in custody that really put everything into focus. Kevin states that he had been drinking that day in Texas City at a bar with a group of his friends. He said on his drive home, he saw Crystal walking alongside the road. He said that after Crystal refused his offer for a ride home, he pulled his truck over, gets out of the car and abducts her straight off the highway and throws her into his truck and takes off. Kevin continues in his confession, stating that he pulled off of the highway to an isolated stretch of road and tried to rape Crystal, but she aggressively fought back. The now 45-year-old refinery worker admitted the two had oral sex before she became angry and struck him. He also denied any sort of penetration occurred. In retaliation, 
Kevin attempted to strangle Crystal with his hands after she hit him, but she wouldn't stop fighting him off. He confessed to taking a welder's line and wrapping it around the 13-year-old's throat and used that to strangle and to kill Crystal. Kevin then raped the now-deceased Crystal, leaving behind the evidence that would later convict him of her murder. Lastly, in his confession, he tells police that he drove her to the bridge area and dumped her body and took off without another thought. On April 27th, 2012, 16 years after Crystal's murder, Kevin Smith is convicted of capital murder and is sentenced to life in prison. Kevin Smith was never connected to any other Texas killing field murders, so it seems that the rape, beating, and strangulation of Crystal Jean Baker was truly a crime of opportunity. Despite the efforts by the League City, Texas police, along with the assistance of the FBI, very few of the Texas killing fields murders have been solved. And those that have been solved were predicated on confessions given by prisoners or confessions given under duress from the police. I saw this written on the Texas Killing Fields Wikipedia, but I still thought it was an eerie quote to end the episode on. The fields have been described as a, quote, a perfect place for killing somebody and getting away with it. After visiting some of the sites and recovered bodies in League City, Amy Cannon Mann, director of the film Texas Killing Fields, commented, quote, you could actually see the refineries that are in the south end of League City. You could see I-45. But if you yelled, no one would necessarily hear you. And if you ran, there wouldn't necessarily be anywhere to go. Kevin Edison Smith is currently spending his life sentence in the Polensky unit in Livingston, Texas, and is not eligible for parole until September 2050 when he will be 84 years old. And that is the murder of Crystal Jean Baker. I do not have any questions or theories regarding this case, but if you do, please reach out to me over email or social media, whatever, and let me know what you think. Um... I do have a small little announcement before ending the episode. I wanted to let everyone know that I am moving again. Um, I thought that I was going to be relocating to Tennessee for my husband's job, um, but that kind of fell through just this last week. So I'm going to be moving back to Texas. So that's exciting. Um, The possibility of me and Cassie recording again together is even higher than ever now. So get ready for that. Um, I will be putting out a Halloween episode next week. Um, After that, I might be out of pocket for a little bit, just packing and moving and unpacking and getting my life together and things like that. So yeah, count on the Halloween episode um, coming at you here in the next week or two. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will be back with more Texas True Crime. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.